Come with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. How's everybody feeling today? You feeling good? Everybody have a good Easter? Everybody ready for spring? Luke chapter 15. You're welcome. Verse 1. <laughs> it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, the point, very simple one, right? Is that Jesus, his mission, and this is brought out especially in Luke. It was Luke who says, it's in Matthew as well, but remember Luke was a physician. And so Luke is the one who says about Jesus, uh, the sick do not have need of a, uh, I'm sorry, the healthy do not have need of a physician, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's in Luke's gospel that we see the account of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, and that was a horrible um, occupation for someone from Israel to have because uh, he was profiting. He was a Roman representative and he was profiting off his own people. <laughs> and so Jesus goes to Zacchaeus's house and it's in that setting that he says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And of course, in Luke 15, we didn't talk about, but you know, the parable of the lost son, right? The son who goes out and the father who waits for him, meets him when he comes home. So Luke's concern in his gospel is very much to portray Jesus and his mission in this, this context of seeking to recover something or seeking to save the lost and specifically to go after the sinners. So when Jesus is telling these parables, when he talks about the lost sheep, when he talks about the lost coin, he's reframing the idea of what it means to be a sinner. That we really have, I think, in, in some senses, we have sent the message to people who do not believe like us, to people who have not yet found the Lord, or the Lord has not yet found them, however you want to understand it, someone who's lost, someone who's a sinner, however you want to understand that, whatever vernacular you choose to use that, we've, we've taken the approach almost like they're trash waiting for God's incinerator. <laughs> and Jesus says they're not trash, they're treasure, because to a shepherd his wealth was his sheep. <laughs> 
to the lady with the ten coins, it's wealth that she's, that she's looking for in the house. And so, and, and the Pharisees very much had this idea that the sinners were just trash. They were the rejects of society. They were the outcasts of society. And Jesus is, understands his mission is not to this religious community. His mission is to identify with those that have been ostracized. His mission is to go after those that are on the fringes. His mission is to go after those that are sinners. <laughs> But Because he doesn't see them as trash waiting for God's incinerator. He sees them as treasure that's been lost. And he sees his mission as he's to go out and recover that. And I, I think one of the real problems that we're confronted with in America today is uh, the toxic images of God that people have, especially in the Western culture. I was reading recently uh, a critique from someone from the East who said that uh, atheism is not really a disavowal or an unbelief in the presence of God. Rather, it is a rejection of the Western God and the way he's been portrayed. And specifically, the critique goes on to say, because he's been portrayed as violent, he's been portrayed as angry, he's been portrayed as judgmental. And, and I'm going to add, as authoritarian. And by authoritarian, I mean, you're going to do it my way or else. You're going to obey or you're going to be cursed. You're going to follow me or you're going to go to hell. <laughs> that kind of authoritarian, totalitarian idea of the government of God. But is that the God... Is that representation of that angry God, that mean God, the violent God, is that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? If you come with me to Hebrews chapter 1... Now remember, Hebrews is being written to Old Testament people. It's, it's being written to God's covenant people. It's being written to people who have what we would call the, the Scriptures. We, we would call it the Old Testament... Jews today don't particularly like that because they don't think their testament is old. So they call it the Tanakh. But he's writing to the people of the book, the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. And look at the first point that he makes. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. At many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That's how the NIV puts it. Whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. Look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So... Christ is not a new representation of God. He's not a different representation of God. He is the exact representation of God. In fact, in the language there, it's the idea of impressing an image onto like clay or wax. So if you imagine like a seal, if, you know, in, in, when, before they had glue, if they were going to seal letters, they would take candle wax and they would pour a big glob of candle wax on the, on the, you know, the flap, and then they'd take a seal, particularly if you were royalty, and you'd impress an image on the wax. And the idea here is that Christ is the wax and the Father is the, 
the seal. That's, that's what the language brings out in the Greek. So that he's taking his being not from his own self, or he's not showing a new side to God. He's showing the exact representation of what God is like. So, and, and it's interesting because in, in the Greek language, here it reads, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, which means he's just given us more words. But in the original language, the, the, the preposition there is in. He's spoken to us in his son. His, his son is his word. Let me read you some different translations because I love these, the way it brings it out. The message, Bible says it this way. The Son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. With God's nature. The Son radiates God's glory and expresses the very character of God. So we're talking about the character of God. What is God's character like? We're talking about the nature of God. What is God's nature like? And the Net Bible says the Son is the radiance of His glory and the representation of His essence. So here's what the author's saying. He, he's saying when you want to know what God is like, when you want to know what His character is like, when you, when you want to know what His nature is like, when you want to know what His essence is like, look at the Son because the Son is the exact representation and the full radiant glory of the essence and the character and the being of who God is. In other words, he's telling the Hebrews, you can't get it from the way God spoke by the prophets. You can't see it in there. You can't understand it in there. You, have, you must look to the sun because only in the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Only in the sun is the exact representation of His being. So the point is this. Make it very simple, right? You ready? I'm going to be simple to, today. God is like Jesus that's, that's the core of our Christian faith. God is like Jesus. But get this, He has always been like Jesus. There was never a time that He wasn't like Jesus. And He always and forever will be like Jesus. That's why in Revelation, Jesus introduces Himself as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. God has always been like Jesus. There's never a time that He wasn't like Jesus. So this creates a bit of a problem for us. Perhaps if we think that the reason the Son came was to turn the wrath of God, or to change the nature of God, or the attitude of God, or the heart of God, Towards the sinner. See, in, in, in the parables of the lost coin, in the parables of the lost sheep, you have the Sanhedrin, you have the, you have the Pharisees, you have the teachers of the law, you have the religious teachers of the law of the day, and they have a certain attitude about sinners, and so they are the representatives. They're, they're the ones carrying God's message, and they're saying, essentially, God has ostracized you. God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. God's wrath is abiding on you. And Jesus, who is the radiance of the Father, and, and representing the Father's character and nature, says, no, they're not trash for the incinerator. They're treasure to be recovered. <laughs> and, and you guys think God is so blessed and happy with you because you're righteous. And I tell you that heaven rejoices way more when the one comes home than He does for the 99 that didn't leave home. <laughs> that means God is happier over the one that... <laughs> that fell away than He is the ones that stayed. 
Thank you. So then we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus like? What is He like? Come with me to Philippians. Chapter 2. Verse 5. What is Jesus like? Because if we find out what Jesus is like, we find out what God is like. And I want to make a crucial point about this. Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I'm going to come back to that. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. God, Christ Jesus, this mind that was in Christ, verse 6 again, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Then the translators here, I don't know what they were thinking. They, I don't know what they were thinking. It says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, which implies that to be a servant is to be nothing. That's why I don't like that translation. Because in our Western culture, we don't value service. We complain about service when we don't get it. <laughs> but I don't know that we value it when we get it. I don't know if we really value that waitress as much as we value our meal. Right, that's what I'm saying. We don't value the servant. So I think our NIV brothers and sisters let their Western mindset get in the way when they said made themselves nothing by taking on the form of a servant. Because that's not what it says in the Greek. And I, I promise you, I've done my homework on this. It's, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read them. The word here, it's one word here, and it says he made himself nothing, and the word is kenosis. And it's a word we need to learn. So just humor me and, and just say with me, kenosis. Kenosis does not mean to become nothing. What, what kenosis means, the best definition for kenosis is... An emptying, or a self-emptying, or a self-giving. The, the kind of one of the pictures, one of the ways it's used in secular Greek is for someone who takes all his wealth and gives it away. So when, when Jesus tells the rich young ruler, sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me, he's giving him a picture of kenosis. Take all the wealth you have and reduce it to nothing because you've poured it out in giving and generosity to others. That's the picture. Now, in the charismatic world, because we're hung up on the power of God, I think I understand where this comes from. And I may have just misunderstood people, and, and I may have misunderstood, and I clearly at, a, at one season uh, misunderstood some things doctrinally about the person of Christ. Because the way I, that I had heard this taught, and the way I had processed it and taught it before, was that, that the emphasis was on Jesus coming as a man. And so the idea was that He divested Himself, and this is the way people would say it, He divested Himself of His divinity and became a human, and so that Jesus lived His life 
as a man, just like you and me, under the government of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is usually we're talking about, you know, the power of God and we're saying that there's nothing that He did that we can't do because we're trying to make the power of God accessible to people. But in our zeal to make the power of God accessible, we actually got into an ancient heresy. A lot of the issues that we struggle with doctrinally have been done for generations and pretty much settled. And I'm going to tell you something. They were a lot deeper thinkers than most of us. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and they they didn't feast on mental candy all day. So all they could do was philosophize and think. And so there's a lot more depth there. So they've thought it through a lot better than we have. And so to say that Christ, now watch this, to say that Christ left any of His divinity when He became a man is a heresy about the person of Christ. Now why does it matter? Because if He left His divinity, then He's not reflecting the radiance of God's glory when I look at Him. If He left His divinity in heaven, I can't look at Him and say that's what God's like. I can only say that's what a perfect human being is like. So what, kind of what we've said, what, what we set up in people's minds was, He left His divinity and He came down and He lived like one of us. And then as one of us, He offered Himself almost as an appeasement offering to God to change who God was or to change His attitude towards us. But that is not the Gospel. That is not the Bible. That is not the teaching of the church. Throughout the ages. Because it's not that He had to turn the heart of God. He came to reveal the heart of God. God God did not forgive you because of Christ. He forgave you in Christ. (laughs) Are you breathing? So so the idea is is that he, he, He was divine, but He did not use His divinity to His own advantage. Instead, He poured His divinity out. Like a wealthy man who gives to poor people and came as a servant, even to the point of death. Therefore, God has given him a position of government. And God says, this same mind that was in Christ, let it also be in you. So that in other words, what God, what, what, what the reality of the gospel is this, is that the, that the gospel really, 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 really is about God's co-suffering love with humanity. His co-suffering love with humanity. He says, I love them so much. See, what we've done with, with Jesus, now here's how we've done it. Maybe you do different stuff in your mind. But at least if I share how I do it, you might start thinking about how you do it. Because I'm not even sure that some of us even think about how we think. We're so sure we're right. To me, the parable of the lost sheep was always a good message for the backslider. Because it wasn't a goat. It's a sheep. So somebody that was born again, right? And backslid and ran away. And so here's how we do this mentally, or how I did it mentally in my mind. So you got the 99. Yeah, probably about that many. They come to church faithfully. Read their Bible faithfully. They're there every time the doors are open. But you got one 
Bad egg. You got one black sheep. You got one sinner in the group. And they leave. And so, and boy, do people like to beat pastors up with this, you know. So if you're a good pastor, you're going to leave the 99 and you're going to go after the one. Right? Or we think Jesus is a good shepherd. And so we think of the resurrected Christ having a heart for the lost sheep that left his church. And we might preach sermons to them like Jesus is looking for you. If you backslide, Jesus is going after you, right? And so we think, oh, he's going to go, he's going to get you and he's going to bring you back. Okay, Robbie thinks like I do. That's great. But we don't really put it in the context of Jesus defining His mission, which was to die. In other words, if you want to know where that lost sheep was, He wasn't on a cliff somewhere. He wasn't up in a tree somewhere. Not that sheep climb trees, but... He wasn't out eating noxious weeds or... You know, he wasn't on a roaster in the wolves' den. That lost sheep was in a place called death. So in order to recover the lost sheep, what he's saying, he has to leave the 99 to go where the sheep is. You cannot seek and save something unless you go to where it is. Basic, right? So he's talking about his earthly mission and where humanity was, was lost in sin and in death and in suffering and in pain and in, and, and in darkness and in oppression and in depression and in hopelessness. The hopelessness of death, the meaninglessness of death, the futility of death, the darkness of death. So in order for the Good Shepherd to come, he had to go all the way into death. He had to come all, he had to go all the way so that he could recover, he could grab hold of, and he could bring back what was lost and recover them into the sheepfold. So when the Pharisees are criticizing his mission, he's saying, you don't understand, I'm going after treasure. You guys have ostracized them. You guys have alienated them with your teaching and with your doctrine and with your law and with your false concept of God. But I, who am the radiance of God's glory, I who reflect the fullness of His heart, I'm willing to leave your institutionalized religion. I'm willing to leave the the, the systems of control. I'm not going to buy into your system of legalistic control and Phariseeism and self-righteousness, but those that have been ostracized from the community, I'm going to stand in solidarity with them. I'm going... I'm going to leave heaven and all that it has. See, you've got to understand that the Greek concept of God, the Greek concept of the gods, is that they did not suffer. That was one of the things that made them so different from humanity. The gods did not suffer, but we suffered. And we were victims of our fate. So the Christian message was incredibly radical because what they're saying is not just some God somewhere in some pantheon, not just some God who represents some natural force like gravity or the sun or, or, or the rivers, not, not that kind of God, but the God who created it all, the God who, who made it all, the one God, the most high God, the, the, the true and living God. He, he chose to come after you and, and identify with you and stand in solidarity with you with, with co-suffering love. He chose to suffer with you in order that He could rescue you. Radical thought. 
The Greeks had their angry gods. The Greeks had their appeasement offering. Jesus came to offer something different. Paul, when he preaches to them, he's preaching something different to the Jew and to the Greek. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. That we through His poverty might be made rich. How do we become rich through His poverty? Because He emptied His wealth. You see, humanity was so valuable to God that He emptied His divinity in order to make Himself poor in terms of His divinity so that humanity could become wealthy. The early church fathers said it this way, God became like us so we could become like Him. That's a radical statement to most Westerners. But that was the gospel in the first few centuries. He became what we are by nature so that we by grace could become what He is by nature. I'm quoting early church fathers who died for their faith, by the way. Who were martyred and suffered. (laughs) A lot more than we have in the West. So before you call them heretics, before you curse them, before you think you've got more than them because you shundai shundai, realize the price they paid. And show honor and respect where it's due. Amen? Alright, I'll get off that. Alright. So here's the point though. Jesus is most like God when He's dying on the cross. Let me show you in 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to do just a little bit more teaching and then I'm going to preach a little just because I want to. But we've got to make it valid, right? So it's in the Scriptures. First John chapter 4, verse 16. It says this. First, first John four sixteen, And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Isn't that good? We know and rely on it. God is love. He doesn't say God has love. He doesn't say God is loving. He said God is love. It's His essence, His nature, His character. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, how many of you know love can mean all kinds of different things to different people? Gary Chapman made tons of money writing a book called The Five Love Languages. Anybody familiar with that? Book or teaching? Okay, most of you are, so I won't belabor it. But the idea is, for those of you that don't know, the idea is is that as human beings, we assign the meaning of love to different actions. So for some people, uh, their, their connection to love is through words. And so in order to feel loved, they need to hear verbal affirmation because verbal affirmation is their love language. Other people are like, you can tell me you love me all you want, show me. These are all the people from Missouri. Right? I don't care about all that telling me you love me. 
Do something to show me you love me. So they equate love with action. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is John using as a love language, or what is God's love language that John is saying that Jesus revealed? In other words, how does John define what love is, so that we're not left to our own interpretation? To understand that, we have to back up a little bit. We can back up to verse 9. And he says... uh, In verse 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see what He just did brilliantly? He said, God is love and this is what love looks like. Jesus dying on a cross. Jesus suffering as the atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. That's what God looks like. That's, that's what God's always looked like. That's how God will always look. God has always been like Jesus dying on a cross. There's never been a time He wasn't like Jesus dying on a cross. So the love of God is... Do you understand? Okay, so let's do it this way. So you understand that Jesus died as a sinner. Alright, so he goes before the Sanhedrin, the kind of the religious government of the day, and they condemn him under Old Testament law as a blasphemer because basically he made himself equal with God. A sinner. He goes before the political structures. He goes before Herod, the, the governor of, of Judea. And he's condemned and he's mocked. And he goes before Pilate, the Roman government, and he's, he's crucified as a traitor. So, so in the Jewish system, he's condemned as a blasphemer. In the, in the religious system, he's condemned as a blasphemer. Somebody that doesn't know anything about God. And so the people who represent God condemn him. And then in the political system, he dies as a traitor. In both instances, he's identified as a sinner. So he didn't just die any death. That's why it says even the death of a cross. It's not because of the suffering and the pain. I used to think, oh man, God was so angry. Boy, he really had to hurt him. So he waited till the most ghastly form of human torture ever invented came along so that he could get his wrath taken out because, boy, because sin is so bad. And Jesus really had to suffer. Even the death of a cross. But listen, he's not saying that. He's saying he didn't just die any old death. He died the death of a sinner. He died the death of a traitor. He, he, died, he died the death of, of... You couldn't even be crucified as a Roman citizen. That's why they, didn't, they wouldn't crucify Paul. That's why Peter was crucified, but Paul was beheaded. Because Paul could appeal to Rome because he had Roman citizenship. And you could not crucify a Roman citizen because crucifixion was strictly reserved for enemies of the state that were not Romans. So even if you were convicted a traitor, you still couldn't be crucified as a Roman citizen. So he died the most disgraceful death that anyone in that culture could die. And so what God's saying is He's saying, I'm going to take on human form and, and through my co-suffering love, I'm going to go after the most ostracized. I'm going to go after the most marginalized. I'm going to go after the most rejected. I'm going to go after the most condemned. And I'm going to stand in solidarity with them. And I'm going to suffer the same fate that they're suffering. 
This is what God looks like. This is what God has always looked like. This is what God will always look like. Alright, come with me. Last passage here. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 12. Now watch this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he's referring to the government that rests in Jesus as Lord. The authority that rests in Jesus as Lord. Right? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. And he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. And by that, he's meaning... Worthy of your acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience or long-suffering as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. Now, the way I looked at this again before is that Paul was a pattern for the rest of the church. That Paul's saying, here's, here's a good thing for you to remember. <laughs> Jesus came into the earth and saved the sinners, of which I, Paul, am the worst, so that through me there could be an example to everybody that would believe after me. Something like that. So when you stand up to preach, you know, you, well, look at all the stuff Paul did. He went after the church and he, you know, was there when they killed Stephen and look at all these horrible things. He's a murderer. He was a blasphemer. It's all this horrible stuff. But Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And so if if Jesus will do that for him, he'll do that for you. But that's not what Paul's saying. Because the way he says it, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that you ought to adopt. That would be a better way to translate it. When it says worthy of your acceptance, here's what he's saying. Here's a trustworthy saying that you should adopt. In other words, we should be saying this about ourselves. Now, some of you are about to get triggered. I'm just going to tell you right now. So just hear me out to the end before you get triggered and turn me off. All right? Jesus is saying, this is a saying that everyone in the church should adopt. Jesus Christ came into the world... To save sinners, of which I am the worst. In the Greek language, what it means is, is it means a contradistinction. It's a big word, right? It means that you make a distinction between every other sinner and yourself, and you say, no matter how bad they are, my sin is worse. And then you say, but God was long-suffering with me, 
so that I could be an example, so that I could be a witness, so that I could be a testimony to all the other sinners about how God is going to be merciful and kind and long-suffering to them. Let this mind, see here's the key, let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. Kenosis. That he had all this wealth of spiritual privilege, but he did not use it to gain an advantage over people. Instead, he emptied all of that and identified with us all the way into our death. And you should have the same mindset. Here's why this is important. Now, please understand. I mean, I'm the guy that for years, I mean, for years, it's like we have to get a righteousness consciousness. You know, and I would just revolt at the thought of someone saying, you know, if somebody said, I'm a sinner. No, 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 that's a statement of unbelief. Because I've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. And can I, can I tell you, the reason is because that, that guy I was telling you about at the beginning that had that sort of Eastern critique that said atheism is not a disavowal in belief in God as a general rule. Rather, it's a rejection of the Western image of God. And I began to understand that as the sons and daughters of God, we have been born into royalty. And I began to realize through my own processing and my own walk that trying to overcome sin in my own strength was a futile effort. And I began to understand the grace of God, that, that, that He made me by grace what He is by nature. So if He's righteous, then by grace I'm also made righteous because I'm His Son. Are you with me? Even to go so far as to say, and this is all biblical stuff, I'm a new creation in Christ. And the word new creation there could also be translated, one Bible translator translates it, a new species of being that never before existed. And so I'm, I'm a superhuman. That's what he's saying there. But what we end up doing is inadvertently creating the same system that the Pharisees had in that we lose a sense of solidarity with our fellow humanity and we begin to take a view of us and them and we begin to take a view that somehow we're superior. Now maybe you don't do that. But I can tell, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I can tell you that there's a large segment of the population who preach grace and affirm grace and believe all that good stuff. But the way they language stuff about other people and themselves, they're creating a barrier that Jesus came to destroy. And so here's what Paul's telling him. He's saying, look, yes, all this stuff that I've been preaching to you, all that stuff I just quoted to you, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, I'm a new creation in Christ, that all comes out of Paul's writings. It doesn't come out of John, it doesn't come out of Luke, it comes out of Paul. It doesn't come from Peter, it comes from Paul. <laughs> and so Paul's saying, look, yes, all this stuff is true, but don't use it in a way that puts you in a position of advantage over other people. Instead, accept this as a saying. In other words, don't, don't lose your solidarity with humanity in their suffering. In other words, if God comes out of heaven and through co-suffering love, He rescues you, don't forget about the suffering. And don't use your thing as, as, as a privilege to other people. Rather, in con- always remember, in contradistinction, them to yourself. Jesus said it this way. This will help you. Jesus said it this way. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the moat in your own eye? Now, what's bigger? The moat. 
You live with you. <laughs> you don't live with whoever you're condemning out there. Or you, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, so you don't see how messed up they are. They're probably more, they may be more messed up, but you don't see it. You can only see how messed up you are. And so it's a good reminder. And so just like Jesus, see, you're being like Jesus when you identify with the sinner by saying, I'm a sinner. It's, it's not a statement that's coming uh, where you're dishonoring yourself. Rather, it's you, setting, it's, it's you saying, I'm not going to take advantage of all that stuff. When I, and I'm going to be a witness, an example, and I'm going to make sure that the wall and the barrier of legalism that Jesus came to destroy does not get rebuilt in my life. And the way it won't get rebuilt is for me to always remember that I'm the worst of sinners, but God was long-suffering with me. I'm the worst of sinners, but Jesus came after me. I'm the worst of sinners, but I wasn't His trash. I was His treasure. And I promise you, if you begin to take that attitude, it'll be impossible for you to look at even the people that you that, that, that are involved in the activity that you think is the most sinful, that you think is the deal-breaker with God. And say, I'm in solidarity with you. Because Jesus moved into a place of solidarity with the sinner. I can be like Jesus and move into the place of solidarity with the sinner, but not lose my essence or my identity or my character or my nature. And then I can be a witness for people that they can respond to. Because I'm not sitting in the seat of Moses. I'm not sitting in the seat of judgment. I'm not sitting in the seat of self-righteousness, pointing the finger saying they need to believe like me. I'm modeling something. Does that make sense? Now here's the most amazing thing about this whole thing. I want to talk to you for a minute about the government of God. Because if I can take you back to the Gospels, when Jesus takes the lamb, what does he do with the lamb, the lost sheep? He puts it on his shoulders. Which means he's lifting it up and placing him by his head. He's not towering over. The sheep. He's lifting the sheep up. To a Jew, they would know Isaiah was maybe the most important book to the Jews of Second Temple Judaism because it promised their Redeemer, it promised their Messiah. All of the Messianic hopes and anticipation, most of it came from Isaiah's writings. And Isaiah said this in Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And so Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are supposedly representing the government of God, but they're representing it in an authoritarian way. And he's saying, I don't govern that way. I govern through co-suffering love. I govern through full identification with the ones who have fallen the worst. And I use my strength to lift them up and exalt them. I do not use my strength to take from them or to exalt myself. See, the government of God is not about God exalting Himself. Serve me or else. Obey me or else. Do this or else. That's not how He uses His government. Instead, He comes underneath like a servant. 
servant. He uses His government to serve. He takes His divinity and pours it out. That's why Paul could say, I thank my Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the One who's in the position of authority, because He gave me His strength. He poured out His faith. He poured out His love onto me so that when I was down... He doesn't use His authority to exalt Himself. He uses His authority to exalt you. He doesn't use His power to exalt Himself. He uses His power to exalt you. He doesn't use His power in an authoritarian way. He uses His power in a co-suffering, self-giving, and, and, and empowering sort of way. By giving it away. <laughs> he doesn't use His wealth to deprive the poor man. He uses His wealth to enrich the poor man, even if it means He Himself becomes poor. Oh my God. And this is the God we serve. Let, let me do it this way. In order for Jesus to put the lamb on His shoulders, He has to bend down. And He has to get underneath the lamb. So that however far the lamb may have descended, Jesus descends further Still, no matter how far man may have fallen, Jesus falls further still. No matter how deep you think a pit you've dug for yourself or you're in, when Jesus comes to rescue for you from the miry pit, He actually does dig just a little bit deeper. He goes just a little bit further than you're willing to go. He does... You understand that, that when He died on the cross, He took unto Himself all the sin and all the suffering of the entire world. And you know what the Bible tells us about Jesus? When He was carrying His cross, He's carrying that cross represents the burden of the sinner. That cross represents the burden of, of the disenfranchised. That cross represents the burden of the marginalized. And the pain and the suffering. The word passion means to suffer. The word compassion means to suffer with. So he's carrying it. And you know what's so amazing? He couldn't do it. He actually fell. Underneath the weight of your fallenness. Because He's showing us that no matter how far you fall, He falls further still. No matter how much you may feel like a failure, when He took on your failure, He failed. He couldn't carry it. It's what He came in the world to do, and He couldn't do it. Do you know what they did? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is going to offend somebody. Please don't get offended by this. <laughs> no, I better not say that. I don't want to offend anybody. No, 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 no. Don't tempt me. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> when he falls, the Romans find a guy to help him out. And his name was Simon... And he was from a place called Cyrene. They picked him out. Cyrene was a location in Africa. 
it, it was a Greek settlement, means he more than likely, in, in fact, he, he probably wasn't Jewish. So they pick a Gentile named Simon. Simon was, I think, the second born son of Israel. So he takes, so the picture, the, the authors, I mean, it's just amazing. So God gives us a picture. When Jesus couldn't carry his cross, he takes a Jew and a Gentile. Are you with me? Because the cross broke down every racial barrier. The cross broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. So Simon of Cyrene represents one new man made of the two, Jew and Gentile, together to carry the cross. Why is that important? First of all, you've got to understand, and this is for somebody specifically, that the Son of God was not afraid to need help. The Son of God was not able to accomplish His mission by Himself. Because had He been able to, He would not have fully identified with our humanity. Because what it's showing us is that none of us can go it alone. None of us can bear the burden alone. That's why we're commanded in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. So don't ever be ashamed to fail. And don't ever be ashamed to ask for help. Because if you failed, He failed. And if you needed help, He needed help. If you've fallen, He's fallen further still. And it's also why, now here's the important part, and this is the part we do, do not like in America, but I think it's gospel. But there are things about Paul that we highlight. New creation in Christ, rescued from the dominion of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the Son of His love, righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Post those on our mirrors and in our counters and speak them. And it's all good to do. It's important to do. But then we kind of pass over other stuff he says. Like in Colossians, he says, he says, I'm suffering in order that I may fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Why Simon from Cyrene? Because he's a picture of the Jewish Gentile church that co-labors with Jesus to redeem the world through the power of co-suffering love. To say he wasn't able to fully do it. He needs a church that will take up their cross and follow him. Meaning that they won't be afraid. See, your cross is not sickness. Your cross is not your tragedy. Your cross is none of that. Your cross... The cross was a symbol of disgrace 
and rejection and it was reserved for the worst of sinners. Taking up your cross simply means I'm willing to identify with those that are less than me. I'm willing to identify with the disenfranchised. I'm willing to identify with the sinner. I'm willing to identify with the rejected ones. I'm willing to identify with them. And in identifying with them and really getting down there and getting my hands dirty so that I'm suffering with them. (laughs) Then what I am doing is I am co-laboring with Christ in the salvation of the world. Through co-suffering love. Because that, gang, is what God wants the world to get. He doesn't want them to, to just get their act together. He doesn't want them to just vote Republican or Democrat. He, he doesn't want them to just be nice little boys and girls. And He doesn't want them to see a portrayal of God in the judgment seat using His divinity to His advantage to lord over people and make sure they do it exactly right. What they need to see... See, a book is not enough. A word and a message is not enough. If it was, Jesus would not have had to come to reveal the heart of God. What it's going to take is a church that is willing to enter into the co-suffering of Jesus with people. And stand in solidarity with them and say, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner too. You're transgender, let me tell you about my mess. You're homosexual, let me tell you, oh, your sin's nothing compared to mine. You had an abortion? You had six abortions? My sin was so much worse than yours. And Jesus had mercy on me. And He's willing to have mercy on you. What, what might happen if that became the embodiment of God in America? What might happen if our words became flesh and we were willing just like He laid down His life for me I'm willing to lay my life down for you. Now watch this. Last thing. Kenosis. Here's the key to the gospel and here's why we've missed it. This is going to be the most important thing I've said today. Kenosis is self-giving. Let this mind of kenosis that was in Christ also be in you. The first act of self-giving is giving yourself to God. Not to the law, not to a list, not to steps, not to morals, not to ethics, not that those are bad things to have. But I'm not giving myself to those. I'm giving myself, first of all, to the one who gave himself to me. It's simply a consent. I come with the good the bad and the ugly. I come with my treasure 
and with my trash. And all I have to do is give myself to Him. And the moment I give myself to Him, I've stepped into the Gospel. And I've made a connection. And His resurrection life and power can begin to flow. And then all I have to do in every situation that I encounter is give myself, after I've first given myself to Him, now I give myself to that situation. The answer is not finding something else for you to do. The answer isn't even changing something else about yourself. What's your mess? What's your pit? What's your trial? What's your tribulation? The, The idea is not to sit down with the Bible like some instruction manual and try to figure out what to do so you can get out of it. And that's what we've been trying to do. It hasn't worked. The key is to say, God... I'm giving myself to you. And sometimes that means you just hurt with Him. Life stinks at times. It does. I'm sorry, it does. And sometimes it hurts. But no matter how bad you're hurting, He's hurting more. And so sometimes you just, Lord, I give myself to you in my pain. I give myself to you in my mess. I give myself to you in my situation. I can't figure it out. I don't know anything about it. But the moment I do that, you know what happens when I identify with Him? The power of His resurrection begins to go to work. It doesn't go to work because I quoted Scripture. It doesn't go to work because I prayed. It doesn't go to work because I fasted. It goes to work because I gave myself to Him. Kenosis. And then I go into that situation. Maybe your problem is your job. So you go into that situation as a servant of the Lord and as a servant of those people, even if they hate you, giving yourself to them and letting the chips fall where they may. You go into that strained family relationship, giving yourself to God and giving yourself to them. That doesn't necessarily mean that you let them make you your, their doormat. Because that may not be what God is doing in that situation. Sometimes you are artificially, sometimes you're trying to be Jesus because you're artificially propping somebody up in the middle of their problem. And Jesus is like, it's like Jesus has descended here to catch them, but you're here holding them up in your codependency. And if you would move out of the way and let them crash, they would find that no matter how deep down they went, there in the depths, they might find Jesus. But you've got to, So maybe giving yourself to Jesus is taking yourself out of the way. Saying, I will no longer support your dysfunction. I'll let you meet your maker. <laughs> and sometimes... That's more, that's, that requires more suffering from you than continuing to write a check or hand out money or whatever you're doing to offer a false sense of support. Sometimes you have to let them roll around in the pig pen a while until they come to themselves and decide it's time to come home. The reality is there's no right or wrong thing to do in any situation because every situation is different. 
I want to do the right thing. The right thing? Give yourself to Him. Then give yourself to the situation. And somewhere in there, Jesus' life is going to be manifested. Somewhere in there, Jesus' power is going to be manifested. Why? Kenosis. I'm going to take communion today. I want you to be mindful today when you're taking the bread. It represents not just the body of Christ, but it represents the broken body of Christ. And when I was growing up in the Methodist church, I would go take communion, and the pastor would stand there and he would hand you the whatever, you know, bread or whatever. We didn't have bread. We had those little things that looked like the inside of a pup bottle. Pop cap. You know what I'm talking about? Little wafers. I'm waiting for the lightning to strike or something. That's what I thought as a kid, you know. But they would hand it to us and they would say, the body of Christ broken for you. And then they'd hand us the cup and they'd say, the blood of Christ shed for the remission of your sins. And you know, I kind of miss that. I used to think it was just religious, but you know, it's not bad to have somebody who represents Christ in your life handing you his broken body, saying his co-suffering love was for you, and handing you the cup and saying his blood was shed for the remission of your sins. Because no matter how far you've fallen, he's fallen further still. Amen. So let's stand up and pray. Is that okay this morning? I'm just possessed with this message right now. I just, I just can't get over who Jesus is. I don't want to. I think I can ever do another six steps to whatever. Just, just possessed with this idea of who God is in Christ. So, Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for the church that's here. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you. Uh, Listen, I'm sorry, put your hands down. Listen, if you're here today, I just I would be wrong to move on to just say, look, if if you need to come home, if you need to come back into the sheepfold, if, if you need to get right with God, as we say, he's right with you. That's what you need to hear. You may need to get right with him, but no matter what, he's right with you. And He's going to be right with you tomorrow and He's going to be right with you the next day. But man, life is so much better under His Lordship. Because it's not an abusive, authoritarian Lordship. It's a loving, empowering, grace-filled Lordship. So if you need to get your heart right with God, now's the time to do it. You need to get your heart right with someone else in your life. Now's the time to do it. It's really hard to not have your heart right with somebody when you adopt the attitude, no matter what sin you do, my sin's worse. It's just really hard to get offended. It's just really hard to point the finger. It's just really hard to be critical. It's just really hard not to be right with people when you take the mind of Christ. It's a gift. And I promise you, just struggling, trying to get that person to act like you want them to act, ain't going to work. It ain't. You ought ought to have figured that out by now. 
Let's go with plan B. (laughs) Just get your heart right. Amen? All right. Now let's pray. We'll bless the elements. Father, thank you for the bread that symbolizes the broken body of your son. Your broken body, your co-suffering with us. Thank you for the cup that represents your blood that washes away our sins. Father, I pray that you'll bless and energize each person who partakes with a special grace, with a special gift from heaven of empowerment, of strength, and of blessing. In Jesus' name.